Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 322 with Michael Fortin. Do you ever find yourself having to persuade folks to help you out, to collaborate, and maybe you don't have the actual authority to command or demand that they help out? Well, Michael Fortin has some excellent perspective on this. He is a legendary copywriter. He hates that word, but it's fun to say it's true. He is a master of choosing words to be persuasive. So you'll learn one, the platinum rule for persuasion. Two, the oath formula to better know the people you need to persuade. And three, the so what technique to bridge arguments and persuade folks. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F322. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out some of our cool stuff. One of the coolest of stuffs is the gold nugget email list. So if you find yourself listening to the show, but your hands are tied up, cooking, running, driving, etc., well, We take those notes to you and send them right to you when a new guest goes live. You also get access to the full archive of 322 guests and more to come from everybody for a quick summary note goodness over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's Michael's story. Michael is currently the Director of Communications at SEO Twist, Inc., a full-service digital marketing agency that's also a premier Google partner, Facebook partner, and Shopify partner. He manages a portfolio of 47 client accounts ranging from small businesses to multinational companies. He's also president and co-owner of Supportables Inc., formerly Workaholics for Hire, an outsourced customer support solutions and back office business process services provider. He leads a team of three managers and 22 support staff, as well as over 200 part-time virtual assistants and remote workers. They handle an average volume of over 15,000 support cases daily with clients in a variety of industries and verticals. He's also responsible for building the client base, developing strategic marketing plans, and implementing business growth campaigns. Big thanks to Michael for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Michael. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, well, I'm so excited to have this conversation. And I wanted to start by hearing about you are a drummer in four different bands. Tell me how this worked. (laughs) Well, I've been playing drums since I was nine years old. I started playing on a drum set that my uncle had whenever he was playing with his bands in my grandmother's house. Every time I visit my grandmother, I was being babysat by my grandmother. I was jumping on the drum set. And that kind of spurred a nice little hobby. And now today I play in four different bands, a country band, a classic rock band, a jazz band, 
and a heavy metal band. So <laughs> you can see that there's a wide range of music there and I'm uh, very busy with all four of them. Yes. That's cool. And have they ever been at the same evening or gig in terms of one is opening for another? So you just are very conveniently scheduled to be in that spot? Yeah, we all share calendars with the band. So they know to not book a gig when I'm with another band. So I kind of tell all four bands at the same time when I'm, I'm available or not. So it it works out really well. And as you probably know, from heavy metal bands to country bands, it's two widely diverse ranges of music. So uh-huh. they kind of not share some of the same gig dates. <laughs> so it's kind of nice. Yes. Can I hear the band names? Are they wildly creative? Well, you know what? It's kind of funny because I started one of the first bands a while back was the time when I used to teach at a local college here. I used to teach marketing, marketing management, professional selling, copywriting, and all that stuff. And we were all teachers. And uh, some of them actually still teach there. Actually, one just retired not too long ago. And we kind of call ourselves Divided Highway because we're all four different eclectic type of tastes in the band. One was a 50s classic rock or rock and roll type of person. The other one is a country guy. I was a rocker. And then another guy was more of a jazz player. So we call ourselves Divided Highway. The other bands, well, one band is uh, Nielsen Colt. He's a national recording artist. He's actually local here in Ottawa. And we are part of the, the Nielsen Colt band. And we play at a lot of festivals, country festivals and whatnot. The jazz band is, we're just basically backup musicians for a singer. Her name is Mel. She's a very widely known jazz singer here and the other band the heavy metal band is a name you know say ftp but it doesn't it's not what it doesn't mean what it says it's called free to puppies <laughs> so make that as you wish and uh, we'll leave it at that <laughs> also, it's important work you're doing free to puppies <laughs> That's good. Well, so you mentioned you were teaching copywriting and that's kind of how I bumped into you is I was kind of learning all about copywriting and you popped up and you have a bit of a legend associated with your name and the history of copywriting. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about that? And if you don't, I'll tell them for you how you're a big deal. Well, my story and how I stumbled into copywriting is actually a nice story because it kind of helps other people who are thinking about what they should do or how they should learn copy. And it's an interesting story. First of all, I grew up with this immense fear of rejection. I was abused by an alcoholic father as a child. And because of that fear, I didn't like knocking on doors. I didn't like being social gatherings and whatnot. And so what I did was I dove into sales. I mean, I wanted to fight that fear. And the best way to fight that fear is to dive into something that forces you to be rejected all the time. And that didn't do well because... I didn't make any sales. I was still a complete failure. And I, you know, I said to myself, there's got to be a way to get those people to call me instead of me knocking on doors and getting door slammed in my face. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to write a letter. I'm going to write this letter that'll ask people if they want some kind of free consultation, free analysis, and I'll get people to come to me. And then I went from, and I, I remember I declared bankruptcy. I was like 21 years old and declared bankruptcy at a very young age to becoming the number one salesperson for this insurance company, the Fortune 500 insurance company. And so I realized, hmm, there's something to this uh, copywriting thing. <laughs> so that's how I stumbled onto copywriting. And I realized over time that I'm far better at writing persuasively than I am at the actual process of selling. But I realized at the same time, when I was learning all these things, I mean, I dove into 
books and courses. I tried to learn more about the process of selling. It actually helped me improve my sales and copy. And this is what I'm trying to impart is because a lot of people say, well, should I write better? Should I, is it about the prose? Is it about the grammar? No, it has nothing to do with that. Learn how to sell or learn the process of selling, become a better salesperson, become a better persuader. And then that will translate into the written format. And up to this day, I guess, you know, a lot of people will remind, will uh, remember me as being the person who wrote the copy, who made the first $1 million in one day back in 2004, selling digital products. And that's kind of what cemented my name as a quote unquote legend. Although I, I hate to use that word, but that's, that's how I became famous. And today, now I am director of communications at a digital marketing agency, a Google premier partner. And I still do a lot of copywriting here, of course. And that's my story in a nutshell. That's cool. And as I recall, the million dollar day was John Reese. Yes. And what was the product? And do you remember the headline? Traffic secrets. Secrets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of funny because John at that time uh, wrote, uh, sorry, he, he did a seminar, uh, the traffic secrets seminar, and he recorded that seminar. And then he digitized it into a video format, into courses, uh, which I wrote the sales letter for. And that's the one that became the million dollar day where he, we, we sold uh, over a million dollars worth of products. In fact, we sold over a million in 18 hours, but we call it the million dollar day. Um, and then I, I remember when we relaunched it, it did phenomenally well as well when we relaunched it. And all I did was we, we tacked on some testimonials at the very top, but I changed the headline. I was, I was hemming and hawing over this headline. In fact, it was kind of funny because I came up with that headline at a copywriting seminar, Yannick Silver's copywriting seminar, I was right there writing copy for John while I was trying to learn copywriting. <laughs> real time. In real time. And I came up with that. I thought, you know, what would be the one thing, the, the best headline possible? And I just said proof. That was my one word headline. A one word headline to a 75 page sales letter. That 75. Was, yes. <laughs> when you print it out, it would be 75 pages. And it, it did uh, another couple of million dollars for John. And uh, I must admit, and, and I'm saying this with all humility, John is a fantastic marketer. He, I learned a lot from him. And it wasn't for him. I probably wouldn't have not done that, of course. Um, and it was also a melding of minds because John gave me a lot of hints and tips and ideas. But uh, it was the one thing that became, you know, the, that, that cemented me as a you know, legend, if you want to call that. Yeah, cool. Well, that's cool. And so, you know, I guess we could dork out about this stuff, but, you know, our listeners are not so much online marketers who are trying to create information products and sell them and all that. There's plenty of podcasts about that and we're not quite one of them. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, I believe every professional needs to be persuasive, both verbally and in print. And so, you know, I'd love to get your take. You know, maybe we'll start broad in terms of if one wants to learn how to, you know, over the years of their career, become progressively, you know, more and more persuasive and have people say yes and to collaborate or help out on a project when you don't have the authority to demand or fire mm-hmm. or give bonuses or incentives financially. Right. What should professionals do if they want to sharpen their skills, you know, month after month? I think the one thing that people have to realize is that we're all in this game alone, right? And I say alone, not together. By that, I mean, we all want the best for ourselves. We all want the best or however we try to help out each other. It's still a selfish endeavor. 
And so when we try to persuade others, when we try to get people to, to come to our side, we often try to tell them why this is such a good idea, this is such a good project, this is such a good uh, task. But we're always thinking about ourselves or we try to think of what the other person might like, which is often tainted by our own glasses, by our own way of seeing things. I enjoy his work a lot. Dr. Tony Alessandra, a behavioral psychologist who actually teaches a lot about selling. And that kind of translates a lot into copywriting. And, and I've used a lot of his teachings in my copywriting work as well. And he has a, a, a whole program called the Platinum Rule. As you know, the golden rule is do unto others. The Platinum Rule is do unto others as they would want to have done unto them. Mm-hmm. Rather, what you would not want to have done unto you. And to do that, uh, there's a couple of things. And I, 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 we could spend an entire 45 minutes just doing this. But the, the one thing that's important is to understand what the other person really, really wants. That involves knowing the other person. It involves in, in copywriting, when we talk about copy in a marketing context, market research. When I have uh, conversations with copywriters who are either they have writer's block or they don't know what kind of sales message or what kind of story they want to tell, I tell them, go back to your market. Do more market research. The more you question, the more you probe, the more you dig deeper into your market, the more things will pop out at you almost instantaneously. And it's the same thing with persuasion in an office environment, with coworkers, with subordinates, even with superiors where you have to understand what makes them tick. What is keeping them up at night? What is something that they will want? Sometimes we look at things and we think that they're, they're looking for a specific thing when it might be a whole other motivation, a whole other intent, a whole other behavior. And the more we know that, the more we can position the same request that we can make but in a certain way that makes them feel like, A, it's their request, it's, they own it, they possess it. But at the same time, they're doing it for their benefit. And you're making them feel like they're the hero. And that's what I do. I, I do that at work. I, I work in, a, in an agency where it's kind of high, pay, uh, it's fast paced. It's uh, high energy here all the time. And we, we do have to have a lot of people on our side. And even with clients, trying to sell with clients, as long as you know, or the more you know about who you're trying to persuade, the more you'll be able to position whatever request you're making to get them to do what you want them to do. Not because you know what they want, but you found out what they really want. Mm -hmm. Well, could you maybe give us some examples of perhaps an assumption that we might be making when we're kind of looking through our own glasses versus a better way to make that request when you're stepping into their shoes? Absolutely. One of the things that I've done a lot in my life are seminars and especially seminars on copywriting. And I did a seminar one time with David Garfinkel, one of the most well-known copywriting coaches, a brilliant man, a very good copywriter too, a fantastic copywriter actually. And he told a story once of a sales situation that, that kind of demonstrates that where he was talking about a bunch of engineers sitting around a table where some kind of chemistry machine, I can't remember what it was, it's some kind of laboratory instrument that they were trying to sell to this group of engineers. And the person trying to sell to the group was talking about all the statistics and the data and the performance efficiency and all those wonderful things. And he told the story where he found out when people were, when the people decide to buy the product, 
when they decide to buy, they said to the salesperson, I'm not buying this because, I mean, we can buy, there's, there's so many things that we can actually do a research on and find out about your product. We buy it because we like to touch it. <laughs> we like to use it. We like to play with it in our laboratories and we like to do things with it. So there's this feeling of, we think that, you know, all engineers are all about numbers, but it comes down to, I think something that is more fundamental is that people do buy an emotion, but they justify the decision with logic. And that applies to engineers as much as it applies to anybody else. And so this person then went into more presentations afterwards, kind of positioning or repositioning the presentation. Yes, I will talk about how neat and new and fun and how you can use this, you know, how it's, you know, you can geek out all over this product in this, in your laboratory, but here are all the numbers and all the statistics and all this data you can use to help justify this to your superior, your purchasing committees and all that stuff. So <laughs> that is a story that is very much applicable. I think you can apply that to any situation. That's interesting. So we buy an emotion and then, you know, justify that with logic. Right. And so then I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, so many purchases I've made are <laughs> flashing before my eyes. When you made those decisions to buy those products, your first reaction was to probably buy it for some kind of emotional reason. And sometimes it doesn't mean it's a, a childish emotion. It could be actually a very, like, it makes me happy. Uh, I like buying stuff. You know, that's that's probably just as, as normal and, and, and human as anybody. But then you'll start to go in free, into your mind and you can do both things too, right? You can talk about all the wonderful reasons why you should buy this product. You try to justify it. But you know what a lot of people do is they also t- try to, to, to justify not buying the product. And they try to think of all the negative that can be associated with buying this product. They're, they're trying to talk themselves out of it. And as a copywriter, we need to do three things. A, we need to sell an emotion. B, we need to justify with logic. But C, we need to handle and, and respond to objections or possible objections that they might have that they will surely have when they're going through that justification process. So in a job environment, in a an office environment, whatever the case is, you might have to think about how are you going to sell a, a, a particular idea to staff or whatever the case is? You might back it up with justifiable, logical reasons why they should go ahead. But at the same time, you also have to think about, well, what are the things that they'll come up with to sort of negatively impact their decision or what they're trying to outsell themselves or to sell themselves away from that product or service, or in this case, the idea, the task, the project. And you have to kind of prepare yourself to anticipate those things and answer them. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's interesting. I'm thinking about in an office environment in terms of there's so many projects that require collaboration across, you know, many functional areas and groups. And, mm-hmm. and so it's like, hey, everyone, you know, give us your input on this or come to a meeting about that. And they don't want to. And so I'm just sort of imagining if we're looking at the emotional angle, maybe you're coordinating a project for a new sort of software tool or module or add-on that will sort of help people do their jobs. And it might be something like, imagine a world where your Friday time and expense reporting doesn't involve painstakingly pulling out, you know, receipt after receipt and taping it to pages and scanning them, but rather with a quick push of a button, you can blah, 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 and just power through that in moments. Yeah, you, you can say something like, you know, hey, John, I know that we've talked about your need for an assistant. Uh, it's That's something that I'm trying to desperately find the budget for. 
and I know that you really need help, you're overwhelmed right now, I would love for you to come to this meeting. We're going to be talking about this new software that will you know, be A, B, and C, and that will do one, two, three. Uh, however, it's going to help us save some money, maybe be able to reallocate some of that budget in order to help justify hiring an assistant for you. And so your input is so valuable and I would love for you to be at that meeting. If you could, could you come, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. That'd be a way to position it. And that's just one example, of course, that just pulled the top of my head, but it's where you can find ways to reposition something that is in their favor or somehow could be in their favor. And then maybe also look at maybe how they come out on top if they do whatever you are asking them to do. Right. And it was interesting when you talk about overwhelm, you know, that's a feeling, you know, that goes, oh yeah, I am. And like, it would be such a relief to have some help support in that way. So maybe could you touch upon some other sort of powerful emotions to get the wheels turning associated with, huh, well, if I'm going for an emotion as opposed to logic, what sort of emotions am I going after? And can I stir up in a ethical and, you know, moral sort of a way to be more persuasive? Well, I use a rule in copywriting called the three rules of the threes. And that means that there are three things that people tend to look for when they, in this case, read copy, but it could be applied in other situations. I talk about the three greatest human goals. The three greatest human goals are to either make or save time, money, or energy. So if you can find ways to position things that will make them or help them to understand that they can save or make more time, more money, more energy, then you've got them. You've got them hooked. Now, the second is kind of a little bit more, we're going down the emotional path here. The second is the three greatest human desires. And I have found in all copy that I've read, all copy that I've written, all copy that I've researched, it comes down to three essential things, greed, lust, or comfort. Greed, of course, it doesn't have to be greed about money. It could be greed about life. It could be greed for possessions, greed for having more time to travel, whatever the case is. Lust, of course, there's a sexual component, but it could also be lust for life. It could be lust for health. It could be feeling younger, feeling more active, more energetic, living longer, whatever the case is. And of course, comfort is you know, the path of least resistance. People love convenience. They love to do things in a more efficient way. How can they get more time is important, but what it can do to be more convenient, to be more efficient so that they can have more time, well, that's the comfort level. And that's sort of the three greatest human desires. And then finally, we're going to step up again, the three greatest human teasers, controversy, curiosity, and scarcity. Mm -hmm. So controversy, of course, is... Something that's hot, that's topical, that's trendy, putting politics and religion and all that stuff on the side. There's always something that's very controversial in industry, in the news, whatever the case is. And if you can use that in your, and I call it story selling, in your story selling process, the more you can engage some of those emotions that will get people to do what you want them to do. The second, of course, is curiosity. Creating curiosity is, I think, fundamental. We have, you know, this new term now that wasn't around a while when I first started on the internet uh, 20 years ago, but, you know, we call it clickbait. <laughs> mm-hmm. Clickbait is kind of funny because I, I'm sure that people will call something clickbait if they are enticed into something that really doesn't satisfy their curiosity or makes them feel like, oh, you got me, you know, hooked onto something like this. Uh, like a fake worm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about creating actual genuine curiosity. 
And I can talk a little bit more about that, but I'll talk about the third and I'll come back to that. So scarcity, you know, people tend to want something more when there's less available of it or when it's about to run out, when it's, you know, because people love something that's rare, that's uh, hard to get, that's only one left, whatever the case is. So scarcity, when there's less time to do something or to get something or to have something and limited quantities, limited resources, whatever the case is. So all that to say that the three greatest human goals, the three greatest human desires, and the three greatest human teasers are things that we can incorporate in our persuasion or our methods that will get people emotionally hooked onto what we're trying to say and what we're trying to get them to do. Now, just to come back and finish on the whole, you know, the curiosity thing, the reason why I love curiosity, it's probably one of my favorite ones, is because of something psychologists call the Zigernik effect. Z-I-E-G-A-R-N-I-K. And I say Z, not Z, of course. (laughs) I'm Canadian, so. So the Zigernik effect is something that psychologists, they use to explain this kind of feeling of uneasiness, discomfort, when something is left unsaid, undone, not finished, until they get that closure. And that Zigernik effect is very powerful because we can open a discussion, we can open an idea, we can open a request, and it won't, people won't feel comfortable until they get that idea, thing, whatever, finished, completed, that thought finished. It's like finishing a movie halfway through. I mean, I think one of the biggest controversial endings was uh, The Sopranos. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if you remember that show and it just fade to black when you were all in the restaurant. So the Zygernik effect is powerful to create that controversy. If I say, for example, uh, you should do these three things and then that's a title of some kind of sales letter and I'm, I'm being very simplistic, of course. And people will say, well, what are those three things? There's a very popular age old, like this is 100 years ago, title for an ad that said, do you make these mistakes in English? Of course, it was for an ad for teaching English. Uh, Which ones? I might be. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so it forced you to read what those mistakes are. So curiosity is very, very powerful. And we can certainly use that in our interactions at the office and dealing with staff because people are always intrinsically and innately curious. Mm-hmm. It's intriguing. And I guess in terms of closing the loops, it's so true. I'm thinking now about my experience of watching the TV series Prison Break. Yes. And... I thought the first season was amazing. It was just some of the most thrilling television I've ever witnessed. And the second season was, it was okay. I was okay. You know, it was kind of fun. And then the rest of them, I think I, there's five. I think I watched the rest of the seasons just like, I just got to know what happens to these guys. <laughs> and I wasn't yeah, yeah, even yeah. enjoying myself. <laughs> I think I finally broke down and said, okay, I'm just not going to watch the episodes. I'm going to read the summaries and then watch the last one. <laughs> I had to know. And those are the best shows. Those, those are the best shows. Those are the <laughs> ones that have the highest ratings. If you go back to, my gosh, the very famous uh, Dallas show when you know everybody was asking, who shot JR? Who shot JR? And then finally, when they finally showed the person who shot JR, the ratings just dropped like, you know, like a rock. <laughs> and that's the Zygernik effect, right? But we can use that to our advantage. We can create a little bit of curiosity, get people a little bit enticed. You know, I, John, I, I really need you to come to this meeting. There's something that I wanted to ask you that's been bothering me. It's on my mind. And he says, well, what is it? Well, I, I can't really tell you right now. I don't have time. But actually, just join me at 3 o'clock at the meeting and I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And a lot of this has reminded me of Robert Cialdini's you know, fantastic books. 
influence, science and practice and his latest persuasion. Yes. And I look forward to the day we have him on the show. And in persuasion, he talked about how he had cracked the code of getting students to like not pack up and leave <laughs> before the class was over, which was he would sort of paint a little bit of a picture for like a case study, like how did so-and-so company pull off this when A, B, C, D, and E were stacked against them? You would expect with these sort of factors that they would have a terrible time, you know, getting market adoption for this offering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember reading a seller where the headline introduced and I, I, it was a question and you had the whole sales letter and then the final PS at the end. Oh, by the way, you know that question I asked earlier and here's the answer. So it literally forced you to read, but it got people to read the whole sales letter, right? So it was interesting and it's a very common tactic. And that's fascinating how when you open up a question that's interesting and you leave out the answer, you know, folks that want to get to it. And so that's great. Are there any other approaches for stoking that curiosity fire within people? Remember I told you about market research, finding out more about the market. There's something that I kind of teach in copywriting that we can certainly apply in an office or in a job setting is what I call the oath formula. And the oath formula means how prepared are people to take an oath? Think of oath. And I use acronyms a lot. I'm a, I'm a acronym fanatic. I love mnemonics and acronyms to help me remember stuff. And oath is just an easy way to remember what stage of awareness are people at? Are they oblivious, which is the O, apathetic, which is A, thinking or hurting? And that means simply this. Oblivious is they don't know. They just don't know. So you probably need to get them a little bit more educated so that you can get them to the next level. And that may be somebody who's not aware of a problem. Some people are not aware of a situation. Maybe somebody is asking for, I don't know, a raise in your company, and they don't necessarily understand that there's a problem that they need to solve in order to get to that level or get to the point where they can ask for it. So they're oblivious. And of course, you can create curiosity to get them to educate them a little bit better or get them to want to be educated a little bit better, and that's fine. But you won't know that until you do that kind of research. And again, I say I call it market research, but in a, an office setting, sometimes just sitting down with people or finding out more about who they are, what makes them tick, what are their goals, what are the goals in the company. Sometimes we say, you know, all people want to raise. You know, I found whenever we've done surveys within companies, especially in companies that I've worked with, that a lot of times money is not the number one thing. Sometimes it might be Heck, it might just be a snack machine in the corner. It could be, you know, a coffee machine. It could be uh, more flexible hours that they can work at home more often because Jane can be with her child or Bob could pick up his child from school or whatever the case is. Anyways, so oblivious. Then apathetic is, so they know about the problem. They know about it. They're educated about it, but they just don't care. So now you probably have to create curiosity, not about this situation, but about why the situation is important and especially why is it important to them? The next level up is then thinking. So they're no longer oblivious. They know about the problem and now they sort of care about the problem. Now they're looking for a solution. It might be any kind of solution, but they're thinking about it. They're thinking about possibly getting to the next level or going ahead with it. And that's where you need to sort of create more urgency. Why it's important to get that issue resolved now. So now you might have to work, think about things that will help persuade them, not just to get them to do whatever the case is, but 
to why they should do it as soon as possible, why it's important to get it done sooner rather than later. And of course, herding is the lowest hanging fruit. They know about the problem. They know their solution. They're not just thinking about getting it. They want it now. They need it now. They're hurting. And that's where your lowest hanging fruit is in any situation in the market or whatever the case is. So it's going to be pretty easy to, you know, create curiosity in this particular case. But at any rate, so the oath formula is something to remember. And when you have a situation where you're sitting down with a coworker or staff member and there's a situation that you want to bring up to them, try to think about where are they at in their level of awareness about the situation? Are they oblivious? Are they apathetic? Are they thinking or are they hurting? And that will kind of frame the whole situation, the whole conversation and help you to position in a much better way so that you can get them to do whatever you want them to do or to get the results that you want to get out of the staff, out of the business, out of the office environment. Oh, that's excellent because I think I've often seen sort of the mismatch in terms of, I think I saw some email that told me that I could play with better predictions and win ETH in the process. It was like, I don't even know what you're saying. Exactly. (laughs) I was oblivious. I think it was a tool to help you choose fantasy football teams and win Ethereum, a cryptocurrency. You know, along the way. (laughs) It took me a while just to know what are we even talking about here? I don't know why I didn't delete it. Maybe I was curiosity at work. It's like, I have no idea what you're even saying to me. And I, am I supposed to know? I feel out of the loop. I'm going to double check this stuff. So. That's really cool to avoid those mismatches and not just assume, oh, well, of course they're thinking about it because I'm thinking about it nonstop. Well, maybe they're not. They're not you. Sort of that platinum rule again. Yes. And I'm thinking, I like to zero in on the apathetic part because I think in a professional setting, that will be a large segment of your audience that you're trying to persuade is like, not my job, not my prob. (laughs) You know, I'm pretty apathetic as to what you're asking me for. So what are some approaches to specifically get those folks engaged? Well, there's a trick in copywriting called the so that technique. When you're trying to explain a feature, of course, a lot of people say, go you know, explain benefits rather than features. And I kind of say, uh, you know, a lot of people will think a benefit is a benefit, but it's not. It's more like an advantage because it's not really, it doesn't really apply to the person specifically. So I call them features to advantages and then advantages to benefits. So, you know, I'll give an example. There's an old saying, I think it was from Theodore Levitt that said, uh, people don't buy quarter-inch drills, they buy buy quarter-inch holes. And I would say that's kind of a benefit, but it's more of an advantage. Why would people need the hole in the first place? Mm -hmm. You know, it could be because they want to build something faster. It could be because they want to get whatever they're building faster, whatever the case is. So in the case of, when we use the so that, so the so that is a question that you would ask at every time you try to explain something. And of course, you need to be educated beforehand. You need to do your research, whether it's knowing about the person you're trying to persuade or the environment that you're in or about what that person's aspirations are, Mm -hmm. what's keeping them up at night, what makes them tick, what makes them excited. So when you come to explain a particular job request or task or project, whatever the case is, then you say, and actually I'll kind of back up a little bit. One of the things that my son, whenever uh, he grew up, drove me nuts was Mm -hmm. why, why, why? (laughs) He kept asking me, why dad? Son, I need you to make you do your room. Why? Well, because it's really dirty, but why? 
And then I've realized, oh, if I say, well, if you clean it up, you'll either get a reward or I'll say, if you clean it up, you'll have more space that you can see on the floor that you can play your other toys with. So, ah, okay, great. Mm -hmm. So that technique says, if you're saying to a John or Jane in the office, I need you to do this so that, and then go on and then do another so that. So I want you to look at this new piece of accounting software so that we can see if we can implement it in our office so that we will have a way to save money in our accounting processes so that we might be able to actually look at extra money in the budget so that we can hire your assistant you're, you're, you're desperately needing right now because you're so overwhelmed. That's cool. Yeah. So that, so that. I dig it because you have an understanding of where they're coming from and then you can link sometimes multiple, three, four, five, you know, so that's to get to where they need to go. And it's funny, as you talk about drills, I'm thinking about my wife. It's like, what would my wife really be into for a drill? And I'm thinking it would be this drill has a shroud and vacuum around it so that there will be no dust, so that there will be no lead particles whatsoever into the air, so that precious baby Jonathan will be completely safe of any risk whatsoever. Exactly. Poisoning. (laughs) (laughs) My my wife loves, first of all, she has, we call it our house, we call it the magazine house because she loves decorating and all that. Although she's not a decorator, she's a nurse. And if you were to try to sell her on doing something that is, I don't know, it's something that's not related to that. You can say so that you know, the drill, so that you'll be able to hang up those wall pieces. And that, first of all, if I, I know that she likes to look, she wants the house to look great because she likes to impress, especially her friends and her guests. So I'll say, you know, buy that drill so that you'll be able to hang up those pictures that you really wanted to, at, the, at the store that you saw the other day at Target or whatever the case is, so that it really makes the room stand out so that when Tracy comes along, she's <laughs> going to fall in love with your living room all over again so that you'll be the talk of the town <laughs> and so on and so on and so forth. Certainly. Well, that just brings it all right back to the market research again. It's like, you know, there could be a hundred different ways to position and to sew that bridge for what matters from what you want to what they want. And that's very handy just to make that very clear and direct there. And one of the powerful tools that psychologists and psychiatrists have, whenever they try to, quote unquote, shrink your head, as they say, they don't often ask questions that make you, they don't, they're not asking questions to be answered. They're asking you questions to find out how you feel. For example, if you say, you know, uh, I really hate my mother. Mm-hmm. Well, how does that make you feel? Or I hate it when she does this. Well, how does that make you feel? Well, guess what? That technique, it's a powerful technique that you can easily use in, a, in an office environment. We often tend to do research by just trying to meet and have meetings and then surveys or focus groups. You know, you don't need to do all that stuff. You just sit down with the person and say, well, how does that make you feel? Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about this accounting software? How do, or in this case, how do you feel about being overwhelmed without an assistant? How would that make you feel if we finally found somebody to actually take a lot of the load off of your desk and off of your lap? Or how would it make you feel if we found a tool that can actually save us money so that it allowed you to do that? Oh, great. You know, so probe further, ask questions. Sometimes people, and again, people love to talk about themselves. People love to talk about what's ailing them as much as what makes them happy. And we don't often listen 
we kind of put our you know fingers in our ears because all we care about is what we feel or how we think the other person feels. And that's where we sort of have to go into what Tolian and Sandra calls dynamic listening or active listening, where we actually do listen to what they say and then we can use that or that's fodder that you can use in your persuasion attempts later on. And, you're, and it's a great skill to actually learn too. Oh, it's great. Thank you. Well, tell me, Michael, is there anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear a few of your favorite things? Uh, let me tell you a little bit about... Sometimes people say, well, when I write a sales letter or a memo in the office or a letter to my superiors, whatever the case is, or even just a project brief, they say, well, how can I make that more persuasive? And one thing that I teach in copywriting that I found when I read other people's copy is that it's very cold, very data-driven, very corporate-y, <laughs> you know, corporate language. And I can understand how that is important when you're appealing to a group, maybe C-level executives, maybe stakeholders, whatever the case is. But when you're talking one-on-one with a person or when you're writing something to get someone, one particular person involved or persuaded, or the case, even a small group of people, keep in mind that people, they'll try to write in a corporate type of language, but people, like I said, don't, they buy an emotion first. They'll justify their decision with logic. So when you hit them up front with the logic, and even the style, the language that you use can be seen as quote unquote logical, in this case, cold, too highfalutin. So I say, be more conversational. Talk is right like you talk. You don't have to, you know, say things that are crass or you you don't have to use the street language, but you can have a conversation. And I tell people this, first of all, I'm a drummer and I play in different bands and that forces me to learn different styles of music. But at the same time, I record, we often record ourselves at almost every practice, band practice, band rehearsal. And the reason why we do that is not because we're trying to have a recording of what we're doing is because I like to listen to myself. I can see where I stumble. I can see where I missed a particular drum roll. I can see where I slowed down. My tempo was not right. Or I can see where I wasn't, What you know, in drumming we call in the pocket. I was not in the pocket. It didn't feel right with the style of music, whatever the case is. Well, it's no different than when you're trying to write copy or even when you're trying to do a presentation. A lot of people will write a presentation and they'll expect to, do, to, to you know, do that presentation, no problem. Well, guess what? It's the same idea. Write down your thoughts or write your sales letter or your memo, but then speak out loud and maybe even record yourself while you're doing it. And if you stumble at any point, if you hit any snag, even if you stutter, you might say to yourself that that part is not clear or you said it in such a way where it's not going to drive the point home. Because if you yourself had to, you know, if you've stuttered or you, you had a point where you hit a snag or you stumbled while you're reading it yourself, you know that the person reading it will even be in a worse position because they're not the person who wrote it. And here's another thing. If you have somebody else read it and read it out loud in front of you, not necessarily the person who's, who you're intended to send it to, the recipient, but somebody else. And if they stutter, they stop, or they're asking you questions, you know, if you have to stop in order to explain to them something, then you know that, oh, maybe I have to rewrite that part, whatever the case is. Same thing as in a presentation. Are you, if you're doing a sales presentation in your team and you're at the office in front of your group, you might want to record yourself doing that presentation. We often do that. We look at ourselves in the mirror 
And that's perfectly fine because you're doing it live. But uh, very often, here's the thing. People will try to do a presentation when they look at themselves in the mirror. You can see yourself doing the presentation. You could probably see the immediate stuff, but you'll probably miss out on a lot of the nuances and the innuendos or the slight subtle stuff that you cannot catch because you're so focused on giving a good presentation. So record yourself. Don't be shy. If you, you know, nobody has to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I write sales letters, I always reread my sales letters and I record myself saying them out loud and I will listen to them and I can see where I stumble. I can see where I need to have parts rewritten or rearranged in some ways so that the flows better. And so this is all, it's a long way to explain this, but here's the bottom line is always record yourself in some way, whether it's a video, whether it's an audio, and then you can go back and then fix things and change things because at the same time, you will notice things as a observer, as an audience member yourself of what you're saying rather than not just how you're saying it. Sometimes I listen to myself saying it twice because I'll focus on what I'm saying the first time, then I'll focus on how I said it the second time Mm -hmm. and I'll change things around. That's excellent. Yes. Wise words. And I, I think I felt that with my own writing and then with writing and reviewing from others. It's like, have you read that yourself? Because you know, there's some flubs here. So lovely. Thank you for that. Now, can you tell us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Uh, there are so many. I'm a quote fanatic. <laughs> and you know, I tend to love quotes because it's not just because they're quotes and it could be nice and you know, they're, sometimes they're platitudes, whatever the case is. That's not the point. The point is how you can look at it and apply it to yourself, to your life. That's what's important to me. And Benjamin Franklin said, write something worth reading or do something worth writing. Mm. And I think it's great because it's at the same time applies to copy. It also applies to life in general. So that's a quote that I love because when I tend to write copy and I feel that's not really getting the point home, again, write something worth reading. Is it worth reading in this particular case? And sometimes it needs a little oomph. It needs a little to be jazzed up. It doesn't necessarily have to be the how you say it. It could be the what. It could be changing the whole idea, the premise, the story that you're trying to sell. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? I think that anything from Tony Alessandra is, it probably resonated through our entire call today. I would highly recommend anything from him. He's one of my favorite motivational speakers, as well as a, a sales psychologist, sales trainer. The Platinum Rule is by far my favorite one. Of course, he's come out with so many of them, different ones throughout the years. But if you were to get your hands on any one course, that would be the one. I learned about personality styles and biopersonality styles when I was writing copy, teaching it to my classes. It helped me a lot to understand how some people are more numbers driven versus some people are more relationship driven versus other people who are more emotion driven and other people's are more bottom line results driven. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite book? I think a, a really good one, if you want to learn about copywriting, especially, is Breakthrough Advertising by Eugene Schwartz. It's probably a little bit outdated. It's hard to get, too. Uh, yes, it is. Very out of print. Yeah. <laughs> but there are copies floating around here and there. I believe there are some digital copies made. I cannot tell you where I have. I mean, I've had my copy for maybe 25 years now. But it's my favorite book in terms of copywriting, learning, persuasion, and print. And I recommend highly. And how about a favorite tool? 
I told you a little bit about earlier about uh, recording yourself. And I'll finish with this. This is kind of my little insight tip. This is something that I do a lot when I write copy, when, especially when I'm stuck, when I really don't have a lot to go on, or if I feel I'm not really getting, to use a drumming term or a musical term, in the pocket of what I'm trying to say. I will try to find somebody who can help me or can sell me on that idea. And what I do is I record them. Mm-hmm. I get them to sell me on this idea or something similar if, if I want to use that. And here's the point. I will record the conversation and then I'll get the transcribe. I'll pretty much get my copy written for me or at least in large chunks of it that I can use in my own persuasion, in my own writing attempts. So sometimes when I do market research, for example, I will actually call some of the happiest clients that my client has sold to that are very happy with the products or service that they bought. And I'll get them to explain to me why they're so happy. I'll try to get them to be excited and tell me what they like about the product. They're basically trying to sell it to me. And I'll record that conversation, transcribe it, and I pretty much have my copy written for myself. And in order to apply this to, let's say, a job environment, if you're trying to sell, let's say, some kind of accounting software to your staff or coworkers, look at other pieces of software that you probably had success in selling the idea to in the past, uh, to your staff in the past. And maybe interview those people and find out what they liked about it or why they liked it, you know, but help them how it advanced their careers or how it helped simplify their jobs or make things easier. And then try to record those conversations, not necessarily in the audio format because sometimes people don't like to be recorded, but take notes, find out what makes them tick. And then you can certainly look at how you can apply that to a, your current situation or your current attempts at persuading your, your coworkers. Mm, thank you. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch with you, where would you point them? Well, I work at a digital marketing agency. I'm director of communications at seotwist.com. That's where you can reach me, certainly. And of course, if you are looking at some of the companies that I own, I own a company called supportables.com. And that's a company that offers customer service and uh, customer support, uh, outsourced customer support. So supportables.com or especially where I work right now, it's seotwist.com. Mm-hmm. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs? You know, a lot of people say, think about a famous quote. And I always like to regurgitate sometimes, <laughs> if, since it's so often said, think different, as uh, Steve Jobs often say. Well, in this particular case, I'd say, do different. Not just think different, but do different. Look at how something is being done or how things, something has been, always been done and try to do it differently. Or think about ways you can do it differently. Do different. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you. Well, Michael, you don't like being called a legend, but it has been legendary uh, chatting with you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for generously sharing these goodies. And I wish you and SEO Twist and Supportables and, and all you're up to lots and lots of luck. Thank you. I loved Michael's take on the oath formula so much because it's such a quick segmentation of who am I really talking to here? And you'll use a wildly different approach if they're oblivious versus if they're hurting or anywhere in between there. I referenced an example when I was chatting with Michael about how there was a misfit, a disconnect between where I was and where the message sender was. And I think it might be illustrative if I pull that thing up right here. So it came from Autonomous, which sold me my first sit-stand desk. I since have shifted to Uplift. But here it is. And I was oblivious. And here's what it sounds like when you're on the oblivious side of things. So here it goes. Subject line. 
Play in the world's biggest sports season. Meet Shake Ninja Decentralized Prediction Exchange, a new way to play. For years, Autonomous has been helping people work smart. Now Shake Ninja will help you do the other thing, play hard. Check out the Decentralized Prediction Exchange that helps you do just one simple thing, predict outcomes correctly to win ETH. Put your predictions up and find the person who thinks you're wrong. Predict any outcome, anything, anywhere. Create your own odds. Make your own luck. Ninja anonymity. Be anyone or no one. Guaranteed payout. No flakes allowed. Kick off the first game or I don't want to shake no more. Okay, so this is really kind of clever and fun if folks are aware of this and engage in this sort of fun stuff like, hey, I am making bets on the World Cup or I'm really excited about this. And so this kind of is cute and fun and nifty. But for me, someone who's oblivious, and maybe you felt oblivious as you were hearing this, I don't even know what I'm looking at and I'm still not quite totally clear. So, so helpful to stop and think about where are they? Are they oblivious? Are they apathetic? Are they thinking? Are they hurting? And make sure you've got a good match there. Otherwise, you're just going to kind of get a huh on the other side. So anyway, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep322. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push the subscribe button. You'll hear from our next guest. It is Kimberly White, and she is talking about some of the wisdom coming out from the Arbinger Institute and the tremendous results that come from really seeing people as people. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.